Welcome to The Lead, a podcast where we learn how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did. I'm Charlotte Northworthy. In this episode of The Lead, I talk to Amy Glennon, a powerhouse journalist and former publisher of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In fact, she was the first female publisher in the AJC's over 150-year history. She more recently became the publisher of Cox Media Group's Vertical Businesses, a portfolio of pure play digital content sites that included dognation.com. Glennon graduated from Grady in 1990 and is back this semester as the Cox Institute Industry Fellow. In this episode, we discuss the transition of the newspaper business over the past few decades and how she developed as a leader throughout the transition. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast was created by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership as a part of its Innovation Fellowship Program. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Now, here's the lead. Welcome, Amy, to the show. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Amy is back in the Grady College today to give yet another incredible lecture during her series of lectures uh, this spring semester, so we're excited to have her here. Uh, You graduated from the Grady College in 1990 and then went straight into newspapers and haven't looked back, it seems. (laughs) So did you always know that you wanted to work in print? I did. I did. It was kind of a a strange thing. I don't know if I was a, you know, a Watergate, all the president's men, Lou Grant kind of kid growing up, but um, I just always wanted to be in newspapers. I I delivered them when I was a kid, the Toledo Blade, way back when, and uh, wrote a little article when I was probably in about sixth grade for our little weekly newspaper in our town in in Ohio, and uh, without telling me or anything, they published it. And so first time I saw my byline in print, and I was kind of hooked from there and did high school newspaper, red and black here, multiple internships, right into newspapers. So you mentioned Ohio. What brought you? That seems quite a shift <laughs> a there. Shift. I, I moved when I, my family moved when I was in high school. So my dad took a job here. We came here. I moved in, uh, moved in out in Marietta. So I went to Lassiter High School when it was in its first few years being open. And, uh, it just brought us here, and my family has all moved away at this point, except me. I stayed in Atlanta, decided that was the place to be. And the rest was history. And, yes, well, we'll see. <laughs> uh, before you uh, entered your leadership roles at the paper, what did you most enjoy reporting on? Gosh, interesting. You know, I was always features-oriented, so I just loved great people stories. Um, but I started out editing more than I did writing. Um, so the writing assignments that I had were more... Uh, special projects or uh, certain certain stories that just somehow fell my way. Um, you know, I had the luck of getting to go to the Winter Olympics in Norway back in 1994 when I was newly on, or I had been at the AJC, I guess, about two years then, a year and a half, two years, and uh, they needed... They wanted to add a features reporter to the group, so I, luck of the draw or something, got to go, but got to write all kinds of crazy things there. Um, so I really just had had a had a wide variety of things there, but more of my work was in uh, the editing side. I think I'm um, probably a little bit of a control freak, so I liked having my hands in all kinds of things and then shaping, shaping stories and the presentation and all of that, so um, found myself in editing roles um, fairly early on. 
Can you talk a little bit more about why on earth you were sent to Norway from the AJC? What what was <laughs> what? there? What, what was going on in their well, brain at that time? You know, it was 1994 uh, for one thing. So newspapers were were still making money hand over fist. Um, it had already been announced that Atlanta would have the Summer Games in 1996. So the AJC was doing everything to prepare for that. That was you know that was Atlanta's coming out party. We were going to be this international city, and we wanted to get everything right. And we figured the best way to know how to cover uh, an Olympics is to go cover some. So um, so we went off to the Winter Olympics, which are a little different than the Summer Olympics. But uh, we sent, um, the AJC probably sent, you know, 15 people over there. Um, and we had an enormous office in the press uh, office. So in this tiny town in Norway, they built this um, temporary press building and it was two stories. It had press from all over the world in it. I'd never seen anything like it. It was extraordinary. And it was full of all of these incredible sports journalists, too, because they were all, you know, the top ones from all of the organizations, the Washington Post and USA Today and all of these that uh, New York Times and then the global papers. Um, and you got to see them, you know, as real people. Um, they were from covering out in the field to in the bars at night, because of course it's a press center, so there was a bar in the press center. Um, but just just an all-out 17, 14, 15, 17 days, I think, of uh, of everything. And the AJC just outfitted us and sent a bunch of southern journalists up to this tiny little town that not too far from the Arctic Circle, and um, and we learned how to cover Olympics. And I just, I, I'm not sure how I got chosen. I had a couple um, good mentors along the way at the AJC, so maybe they helped. Maybe my name just could have gotten pulled out of a hat, but I took it and ran with it. It was fun. Would you say that's the furthest you've traveled for journalism? <laughs> I'm trying to think. Yeah, oh, I think definitely, yes. That would be the farthest. So, you know, they say that some reporters don't make good editors and vice versa. How did you know that you wanted to, you mentioned that you're a control freak um, and you like having your hands <laughs> sort of in it. that mix. How, how did you know that you wanted to ad advance in leadership roles rather than the reporting route? Yeah, you know, early on, I, I probably had the same um, goals as a lot of um, journalism students. I wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be an investigative reporter. Um, I got into uh, real newspaper work and realized um, you know, I, I could be a decent reporter. I was going to be a serviceable reporter, but I was probably never going to be a great reporter. I could look around and see some of the ones who were really, really good, and they just, they were fantastic. And, you know, if I was going to do something, I wanted to be really good at it, and I could see that there were people who were going to do this part of the world of the work uh, better than me. Um, but I but I did have a knack for pulling things together and working with teams and and bringing visuals together with the words and the layout and kind of thinking holistically about how to present information. And uh, that was exciting to me. I liked watching it all come together. So just started naturally falling into those kinds of spaces. And that led to larger roles doing those kinds of things, moving from story editing to section editing to department head kinds of roles. Um, and it just kind of came from once you start scratching at wanting to see how the whole thing works from how does a whole story come together to how does a whole section come together to ultimately how does a department work and how do you make that work in the whole role of the newspaper. Every time I scratched one of those, it just got more interesting. So just kept going. Did you struggle with any of these transitions at all? Um yeah, I, there were definitely moments, learning moments along the way. Um, you know, I, I was sometimes younger in roles than some of the people that I was supervising, and I had to kind of figure out that dynamic. I had um, really good 
mentors though along the way people who um, would would gently call me out on things if I was kind of missing the mark um, and who were just really generous with their knowledge they they were willing to talk about their own experiences they were willing to show me how they had done things um, from very uh, kind of soft science side of people leadership to very hard side people who would throw open you know, once I got on the business, I throw open the the financials and start talking about specifically what was going on in the financials and how to how to read the financials and how to do that. And that kind of you know mentorship is is just invaluable. You you were talking about financials, um, and that made me think of sort of the transition that newspapers were thrust into with this thing called the internet. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what it was like being at the newspaper during that time? Yeah, you know it's. Um, I think looking back on it, you wonder how we we as an industry got caught so off guard, and I think it's just the the um, byproduct of being so successful for so long. You can't believe that it could be disrupted to the level that it was. So I think if you look back at the history of of newspaper financials, the the highest revenue years were two thousand five, two thousand six. And by 2008, the bottom had fallen out, and you just could not believe that it could happen that fast. And if you think about, particularly American newspapers, just you know, so much built on the back of classified advertising, real estate, and cars, and help wanted, and job ads. I mean, they were the only place for that kind of advertising. Then all of a sudden, there's Career Builder and Craigslist and all of this, and you, I think, as an industry, we all kind of lived in denial of that for a little bit and just couldn't believe, oh, come on, this Craigslist thing can't really be, you know, people won't really believe that or go that direction. And in truly a blink of an eye, just a couple of years, it was hundreds of millions of dollars just gone uh, out of out of the papers, and um, those are really, really difficult times. You go from from a, a working model and a culture of being, you know, in the lead and having resources and things to do with, to all of a sudden the the, the model has flipped. Uh, what used to work doesn't work anymore. Um, things you used to count on, certain types of advertising, things like that were going away faster than you could replace them. And it shifts everything. Uh, shifts how you think. It shifts your resources. It shifts, you know, you start dealing with downsizing and things like that. So really difficult times. Um, and all of that happening so fast that it's just hard to kind of get your arms around it at first. How did you go about leading your teams during that? I mean, I, I can only imagine, you know, morale nowadays is low for different reasons. <laughs> but but na but at that point, I'm sure morale was sort of things were up in the air. Is my job going to be here tomorrow? How did you keep uh, the eye on the prize yeah. at that point? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons I learned and, and kind of took to heart through all of that was the value of transparency in everything. I think for a lot of news organizations, particularly private ones, um, the numbers and financials were, you know, they weren't discussed. You didn't talk about them. So nobody really knew. You just assumed, oh, everything's fine and you're running along. And, um, you know, you come to realize that everything isn't fine. And the problem with not having, uh, having, having had all of that be open and discussed along the way is that people get they're on their heels and they're surprised by those things versus being part of helping you figure out the next step and just feeling um, part of the 
part of the organization versus someone that the organization is doing something to. And, uh, you know, for me, it was the lesson that if you're ever in a leadership position, be as transparent as you can possibly be and trust and hope that the people that you're working with will be part of helping find solutions. And, you know, it also helps in the toughest of times when you do have to, you know, do buyouts or do other things that people have a bit more of insight into why is this happening and they may have had some, um, you know, they've seen the writing on the wall and prepared themselves a little bit for it. Um, the idea that someone could get caught off guard by that is is really, really hard. So you were the first female publisher of the AJC. What does that What does that mean to you? You know, I've had people ask me that question, and I've, I've thought a lot about it now, uh, now that it's kind of behind me. I don't think I handled it well <laughs> at first, um, and not not because I, you know, was worried about it or something. I actually didn't want to think about that as a big deal because, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I did, that wasn't part of it. I had the job. I was going to do the job. I got it legitimately. I didn't get it because I was a woman. I didn't want people to think I got it because I was a woman. So I was thinking more inwardly about what it meant to me, which was kind of the wrong perspective to come from. And what I began to realize and what a few close colleagues helped me realize was that it wasn't about me. It was about young women in the organization and what it meant to them. And I think that sort of dawned on me that, you know, had I been 24, 25, 26, and there had been a female publisher, I think that would have meant something to me. And um, so I hope that I hope it did mean, I, I know from uh, talking to young women in the organization, it does mean something to them. And it uh, allows them to see themselves in that role someday, and, and they should. Um, but I think I was, I was too hesitant to acknowledge that uh, early on, and then later realize, oh, I should be having conversations with young women in this organization about if you have desires to lead on the business side or want to go there, there are ways to get there. And... Uh, so I think I wised up a little bit later on and, and hopefully helped some of them. I hope I didn't scare, you know, scare anybody off, but uh, I hope that there are other women in the organization, and I know there are women um, out in the industry who very much uh, want to lead and have incredible credentials to lead. So once you finish up your fellowship with the Cox Institute, what is next for you? What is next? I, you know, I get that question all the time, and I don't know. Um, it's kind of exciting. I'm, it is. It's very exciting. I'm not in any real rush uh, to do anything else, like like a lot of people in many industries. But it's a it's a it's a 24 seven kind of job, and your family has to buy into it as well. And so they they did a lot for me, uh, my kids and my husband, to support my role. And it's kind of nice to be back now, <laughs> doing a few more things for the family. And then I don't know. I'm looking into a few things in the in the community and then we'll see. Having a bit of an exhale moment. A little bit of an exhale moment. That's great. Doing a lot of things we just never had time to do. So in your opinion, what makes a good leader? Wow. You know, foundationally, it's just integrity. This has, for, for me at least, to follow somebody, um, I have to believe in them. I have to trust in them. And then they have to have enough of a spark to really inspire me. So you know, if the recipe was a high integrity person who communicates well and inspires, that's probably what I see as most important in leadership. 
And as a final question, do you think it's important for journalism students to learn about leadership? And if so, what advice do you have for students in regards to developing their leadership abilities? I absolutely think it's important, uh, and and maybe now more than ever, to have leadership qualities within um, within journalism students, within the journalism uh, industry. You know, we're challenged right now in every way, financially, um, as an institution, as a, as the bedrock of our of our democracy. We're being challenged in ways that I don't think we ever have been in this country, and we need leaders who are ready to. Um, nurture the First Amendment rights uh, that we have uh, and defend them. Um, and we need people who are willing to choose to lead and willing to make decisions. I'm always kind of stunned. Um, lots of people have opinions and lots of people have commentary, but when it comes, push comes to shove and somebody's got to make a decision, a lot of people shy away from that. And I think if you want to lead, you've got to be willing to make the decisions. And they aren't all going to be the right decisions, but you've got to be willing to make them. And I think in journalism right now, there are so many decisions to be made, uh, strategic decisions, cultural decisions, that um, we need leaders. And, and to me, if they're based in kind of a deep appreciation and understanding of what journalism is about, and they're willing to be that person that steps forward to make decisions. That's a great combination. And we need it. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here, Amy. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been a great discussion. Thanks for listening to The Lead. I'm your host, Charlotte Norsworthy. This episode was produced with guidance from Keith Herndon, director of the Cox Institute at the University of Georgia. For more episodes with interesting media leaders, subscribe to The Lead on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Until next time.